0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 99, The 100 Most Influential Games, Part 2. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, we did it. It took us some time, but we got through 40 games in not quite 40 minutes. Maybe twice 40 minutes. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think it was just twice 40 minutes, Jeff. It could have even been three times the 40 minutes, or four.
1: Four times four. That's great, right? It wasn't quite that long. It was some period of time. But we made it. We talked about some games, then we talked about some other games, then we went off on a tangent, we went off on another tangent. Mm -hmm. Now we're back to do it all over again, but with 40 different games. That's right. And hopefully a little bit faster now that we've gotten into a rhythm. As some of you already know that are listening to this, we did record all of these at the same time in one epic and insane live stream. That's right. We lost an entire Sunday to this. It was definitely Saturday. Oh, well, we definitely lost an entire Saturday to this. We lost our entire conception of time and space to this, is what Jeff is trying to say. We are now lost in time and space. We're lost. I'm lost. So, yeah, we got another round of 40 games. We'll probably get through them a little faster than the first round now that we're figuring things out. As I said, we've got these in the uh, previous episode. As a reminder, we kind of have these divided into categories. A lot of the games that come up today are going to be more modern games from the 90s or 2000s. That is not entirely true. That's just the way all of this kind of fits together a little bit. And just as a brief rundown again of our criteria, these are the most influential games of all time. Not necessarily the most popular, not necessarily the best ever, just 100 games that we feel were very influential. We're talking about influence in terms of influencing mechanics of later games, influencing the growth of the industry, influencing trends in the industry. A hundred is a very arbitrary number that we chose for our hundredth episode, so on the margins there'll definitely be a lot of stuff we're missing, but at least it gives an overview of some of the most influential things that have occurred throughout the history of this crazy medium. Well, in that case, we're going to have to start off going through all 40 of these
0: games. So. Let's start off with one that is dear to both your and my hearts. Let us think back when we were young whippersnappers playing a game, hiding in the bare room, trying to figure out whether or not something was a foundation or not. Dune (laughs) 2.
1: Okay, so we can't actually start there. We can't. Because there's a chain that we really need to do in order. We will start with the real-time strategy chain. That'll be the last of the first three games we cover here. Doom 2, real-time strategy game, was inspired by a lot of games. One of those games was Herzog Zwei. One of those games that inspired Herzog Zwei was the next game on our list, Rescue Raiders. So this is a very obscure game. This is not a game that was a particular hit in its own time. It's not a game that was a great seller. It's not a game that's fondly remembered today. But it's the beginning of the chain that kind of leads us to real-time strategy. So we're going to go slow here in the first couple again because we're explaining things. But we'll get faster, I promise, Jeff. I promise. No! Rescue Raiders was a game that was released by Surtec, the wizardry company. But it was created by a couple of outside people that submitted the game to them. It wasn't created by the programmers at Surtech. It's a game where you have a side-scrolling playfield, and each player has a base on one end of this playfield. Each of them controls a helicopter. The helicopter can fly around freely and shoot everything on the field, and then your base, you can create foot soldiers in your base that you can purchase, and those foot soldiers start moving from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen or right side of the screen to the left side of the screen towards the other base, and you can protect them with your helicopter. And what you have to finally do is there's a van full of explosives, and you have to get that van from your base to the other base to blow it up. And you have the foot soldiers to serve as cannon fodder to protect it on the ground, and then you have your helicopter flying back and forth that allows you to uh, take matters into your own hands and keep things safe as well. So it's not really a real-time strategy game. But it's got the concept of you have a home base, you're destroying your other characters, other players' home base, and you're generating units in order to make this happen. The reason that Rescue Raiders is important is we know now from John Skispaniak's work in his uh, Untold History of the Japanese Game Industry, he interviewed the person that created the game Herzog, or Herzog, if you're pronouncing it in the German, it means Duke. He talked to the guy that created Herzog at Technosoft. Herzog Zwei, Duke 2, the sequel, is basically just a refinement of the first game. Instead of Herzog Zwei, I chose as the next game in our list, Herzog, because it's the progenitor of this. And this game is directly inspired by Rescue Raiders. We know that now because of what the guy told uh, John Skispaniak in Germany. You can see the similarities because in... Herzog and Herzog Zvi, both of them, you control a helicopter. It's an overhead view, it's not a side view. But you control a helicopter that can fly all around the map and do all of its fancy kind of helicopter things. Then you have units that you build. You've got a base on one side of the screen and a base on the other side of the screen. Then you have this giant vehicle that controls things, and then you have other units that you create and it drops them off and moves them around. You can purchase them when you get money. All of this kind of stuff. There's a chain from Rescue Raiders to Herzog. And then Herzog's Fi is just kind of a refinement of that formula. And then Herzog's Fi is often considered one of the main games that inspired the real-time strategy movement. It was not actually the main game that inspired the Dune 2 people, though it was one game that they were certainly aware of but the entire real-time strategy movement taken as a whole was most certainly inspired by Herzog's Zwei. Again, you're not quite there yet, because you don't have all of the elements that are in a classic real-time strategy game, but you have the bases, you have the purchasing units, you have action in real time, and destroying the other player's base. Dune 2, then, is the game that just brings all of that in together and is the first game that is literally advertised as what we call now a real-time strategy game. So there's another game that I didn't put on this list that I probably should have, but the list is set in stone now. It's too late. We're not changing it. And I debated putting it on the list. I just ultimately didn't. Maybe it should have been on instead of Herzog. I don't know. But the game Populous, you know, the God game, Populous also had a real-time element to it. Populous was actually a bigger influence on Dune 2 specifically than uh, Herzog's Fi was, generally. The guys at Westwood got this idea between that and working on their game Eye of the Beholder, where they would do this kind of real-time thing in strategy, and they added kind of the last major classic element to it, which is the resource-gathering piece of real-time strategy, which hadn't really been a part of it yet. The other thing that they added was, you know, kind of upgrading of your forces over time as well through the creation of new buildings. It's not like a Blizzard game upgrading where you, like, research this to give plus one to attack or whatever, but just the idea that your forces get more diverse and more capable as you build more buildings. Dune 2 really is the real-time strategy game created out of whole cloth. We put a couple of precursors in our top 100 as well. But Dune 2 is really the start of it, and real-time strategy has faded in its luster a little bit today. But as we'll see as this episode goes on, of course, real-time strategy leads directly to tower defense and to MOBAs, which are still ridiculously popular today. We're looking at you, League of Legends. Right. So the real-time strategy game is still an important enough chain of events that it makes sense to kind of map out a few milestones along the way. So we chose three of those milestones, the obscure Rescue Raiders, the only slightly less obscure Herzog, and the probably more obscure than I'd like to think it is, because we're old now, damn it, Dune 2. Doesn't that lead right into StarCraft? Sure. So StarCraft, you know, Blizzard did a lot of games. You could choose several real-time strategy games for this portion of it. I chose to go with StarCraft for a couple of very important reasons. I mean, it is kind of cool that it has the three races and the rock, paper, scissor approach, but that's not even the reason that we're doing this. There are two main reasons. One is that StarCraft is one of the foundational games in the esports movement because Korea went nuts for StarCraft. Absolutely nuts. And they started having big tournaments, and then tens of thousands of people started going to these tournaments, and then Korean television, mainstream television networks, started broadcasting these tournaments. And the entire potential of the esports field was really first mined and explored and made known to us through Korea and its obsessive love of StarCraft. That's reason number one that we went with StarCraft as our Blizzard game. The other one, I mentioned at the top of the previous episode, though not at the top of this episode, that one of the rules, so to speak, of this list is that we would discuss full games only. We would not discuss mods. However, prominent mods are something that we took into account when we were building this list. And the other very important thing that happened on StarCraft, of course, it had a very robust level builder. There was a map created by a gentleman who went by the name Gunner Forever called Aeon of Strife and of Strife, was something a little different. You see, one thing that set StarCraft apart from the real-time strategy games that came before it, things like Dune 2 and Warcraft, is that there were certain missions in the game that you just controlled a small set of units, and you went through like a base and dealt with some objective. The other thing that was unique about it compared to some of those other games is that you were oftentimes given distinct hero units, that were important to the story of the game, which often had special abilities. It's not the first game that had unique guys that joined your forces. I mean, Command and Conquer had that. Warcraft had that. But this one had them fleshed out even a little more than that. So this combination of having these specific hero units and having certain missions where you're not just destroying the other one's base, but completing you know more complex objectives, which then, of course, was reflected in the level editor as well, led this guy, Gunner Forever, to create the Aeon of Stripe map for StarCraft, in which you control a single hero, a single unit, fighting AI-controlled enemies that come at you through three lanes. That sounds really familiar. That's right. There were a group of eight heroes in the initial roster for the game. They changed over time for the map that you could choose from with their own abilities, and as you defeated enemies that were coming through these lanes, you would be awarded minerals, and those minerals could be used to purchase armor or weapon upgrades for your hero. Any of that sound like something you've come across elsewhere? Oh, I don't know.
0: Dota, League of Legends,
1: Mm -hmm. pretty much
0: any MOBA
1: ever. This is ground zero for the MOBA movement. The other game we could have chosen here is we could have chosen Warcraft 3.
0: Yeah, I would think that that's the one that really popularized it, I think.
1: So it popularized it. So as you know, in this uh, set of rules where there are no rules, sometimes I have chosen the popularizer and sometimes I have chosen the progenitor. Sometimes there's reasons for it. Sometimes it's quite honestly just a coin flip. The reason I went with StarCraft this time instead of Warcraft 3 is that, again, with just doing 100 games, there really wasn't room for both and because StarCraft also had a humongous influence on the esports movement, I figured that there were more different areas that StarCraft covered than WarCraft 3 covered. Dota, Defense of the Ancients, which was a WarCraft 3 map that added the whole tower defense bit to this concept, was directly inspired by Aeon of Strife. This is the beginning of that chain. Dota is the one that really created tower defense, Tower defense is the thing that really led to the MOBA, but it all starts right here in StarCraft with the idea of a hero and upgrading the hero over time. Enemies coming at you through three lanes, got to stop them. Sounds good. Seven Cities of Gold be next? Seven Cities of Gold is fine. There's a lot you could say about Danny Bunton, who uh, at the time these games were created, uh, presented his mail and, and went uh, by Dan Bunton, later on had reassignment surgery and went by either Danny Bunton or Danny Bunton Berry. It's kind of hard to trace a lot of her influence through chains of influence. Uh, We talked about her, of course, some when we talked about our EA games. There's no doubt that a game like Mule uh, was hugely influential on a whole generation of game designers, but it's harder to pinpoint exactly where that influence entered other people's games. Seven Cities of Gold is important for one very significant reason. It completely changed the life of one Sid Meier. Sid Meier at Microprose was making flight simulators. They were very good flight simulators. They were very well-done flight simulators. But that was the business that Microprose was in. Those are the kinds of games they made. Then Danny Bunton created Seven Cities of Gold for Electronic Arts. This was a game where you controlled essentially a conquistador. You loaded up for an expedition to explore the New World back in Europe. Then you landed in the new world and you had to explore, you had to discover resources, you had to interact with native tribes and kind of uncover this new world and succeed in this new world. When Sid Meier saw that, he was absolutely blown away. And so he decided after that to make the game Pirates, which is not mechanically all of that similar to Seven Cities of Gold, But the idea that you have multiple systems going on at once, that you're the single character within this larger framework, and that there are multiple activities that you have to do in order to be successful. I mean, the different mini-games and pirates were far more fleshed out than anything from Seven Cities of Gold. But without Seven Cities of Gold, you don't get Sid Meier taking that left turn into pirates. And without Sid Meier taking that left turn into pirates, you don't get Civilization, which, spoiler alert, may be coming up later. Seven Cities of Gold is one of these ground zero points, and it was actually very successful in its own time. Danny Bunton's games in general were not very successful. Very well made, very well done, and hugely influential on colleagues, but not commercially successful. Seven Cities of Gold was the one exception. It sold 150,000 units on microcomputer platforms at a time when that meant something. That would be equivalent to probably selling two million or or three million today. That was significant. For inspiring Sid Meier to become the awesome, amazing designer of games that he is now, not that he wasn't awesome before, he was just stuck in a very particular type of game, Seven Cities of Gold makes our list. Dynasty Warriors, the perpetual beat everything up. So why is Dynasty Warriors on this list? That doesn't seem like something that makes a lot of sense to be on the list. So actually, I I should have started the chain with this because I totally forgot that was part of the chain, but it's okay. The reason Dynasty Warriors is on here is not specifically for the type of gameplay that it has, per se, but Dynasty Warriors was the primary influence on Gunner Forever when he created the Aeon of Strife mod for StarCraft. He was playing a lot of Dynasty Warriors 2 and Dynasty Warriors 3 specifically. A lot of people point to a very obscure game called Future Cop LA as something that was progenitor to tower defense. And there's a very good reason that people do that, because if you just look at that game and don't know the history, the precinct mode of that game, not the main mode, but a side mode it had called precinct mode, really looks like a tower defense game. So a lot of people kind of assume that that's where the initial spark for tower defense came from. But Gunner Forever was actually inspired by Dynasty Warriors, because remember, the original game didn't have the towers. I mean, for all I know, the guy that was inspired by Aeon of Strife, I don't know much about Defense of the Ancients' lineage, you know, the specific influences they took. It's possible that they combined Aeon of Strife with the towers that they saw in Future Cop, and uh, that's how we got towers, so maybe it still has an influence. But I can state definitively that Gunner Forever was not inspired by that. He was inspired by Dynasty Warriors, where you have this hero unit that you improve over time, and then you turn them loose on, like, hundreds of little scrubs that you just, like, slaughter. Which is so much fun. Yes, so that's why Dynasty Warriors is in here. So that's our chain. We don't have any other games in the tower defense chain, I don't think, on our list. I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong about that. But we chose those two. Because basically, the train is from Dynasty Warriors to Aeon of Strife within StarCraft to Defense of the Ancients within Warcraft 3 to League of Legends. The reason that League of Legends is not there, you may recall from the first episode, we're looking at the games that were influential in shaping the industry as it exists today. So if a game is hugely popular and widely played today, we're looking at the games that influenced those games. 20 years from now, we'll be able to see better what League of Legends itself influenced. But since we're doing influential games, we don't know what League of Legends influences yet. Instead, we're looking at the games that influenced it. And in that case, it's Dynasty Warriors to Aeon of Strife to Defense of the Ancients. That's why Dynasty Warriors is on the list, for reasons that one might not have expected. What about Fire Emblem? It was one of the first uh, what we call tactical RPGs. I just wanted something on the list that represented that whole field of things. Obviously, there's a new Fire Emblem game out right now. It's very popular with a certain set right now because of all the people you can have tea with. And I guess there's some like strategy in it too. But more importantly, there's tea. You like tea. I do like tea. I'm drinking it now. So, you know, it's the beginning of what we call the tactical RPG. The chains of influence are hard to figure out there because there are fewer interviews with Japanese developers. It's hard to say what Fire Emblem's direct influences were, though it's kind of obvious that it takes some of its influence from earlier kind of turn-based strategy games and mixing in some RPG elements. I mean, that much is obvious. How much influence Fire Emblem had on the way the genre developed, it's hard to say. Some of the other big ones, Shining Force is a big one, but the creator of Shining Force has said that Fire Emblem was not an influence. In fact, he didn't like Fire Emblem very much, so it was only an an influence in the sense of what not to do. We know the creator of Ogre Battle, who then also went on to create Final Fantasy Tactics, was kind of influenced by taking RPG gameplay and then adding some other stuff to it, so I'm not sure how much he was influenced by Fire Emblem as well. I don't know where the Disgaea people got their influence. I wish I could have done more chains of influence with uh, tactical RPGs. But I wanted them to be represented because I want every major genre to kind of be represented at least once, and Fire Emblem was first. So yay, Fire Emblem. And it's been a highly successful series that's gone on for a very long time. Yay, Fire Emblem.
0: What about something from the ancient text adventure lands? Daiku Mud.
1: Diku. Diku Mud. This is kind of coming into the chain in the middle, but because we are doing the top 20 games on their own, that breaks some of our chains. Obviously, before Deku Mud, you have to have Mud, and before Mud, you have to have Adventure. But we'll get there. We'll get there later. Deku Mud is here because Deku Mud is essentially EverQuest without graphics. It is one of the primary influences on the creation of EverQuest. And EverQuest is the game that really popularized the MMO in the terms that we think of MMOs today. I mean, Ultima Online was first, but Ultima Online was more like an Ultima game that you played with multiple people. EverQuest was a three-dimensional world, and it had all the grinding, and then it had more grinding, and then it had dungeons, and the dungeons were full of grinding, and then you'd get to the end of the dungeon, and then someone following behind you would steal your kill. Yeah, I never played EverQuest. I know there are a lot of people that love EverQuest, It just sounds horrible to me. But then I started MMOs with WoW, and WoW was basically a reaction to everything that was wrong in EverQuest, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So Deku Mud is here. I did not do EverQuest. Again, if we had 200 games, I'd do EverQuest. But instead of doing EverQuest, I did Deku Mud, because Deku Mud was a combat-oriented mud. Mud was more based on interacting, exploring, doing some puzzle solving, and yeah, there was some fighting too, but it wasn't the emphasis. Then there was a splinter from M.U.D. called Abermud, which was about bumping up the combat aspects of M.U.D.s, so it became a little more like an M.M.O. as we think of them today. And then Deku M.U.D. took that to an even greater extreme. It was inspired by Abermud and made an even bigger extreme on that. And then the EverQuest people basically took Deku M.U.D., put a graphical shell around it, and had the first kind of classical... MMO resembling what we think of them as today. So there are two other MMOs that we chose here and that can be the rest of our chain here. Neverwinter Nights is on here. Now this is not the Neverwinter Nights that Interplay, that Black Isle Studios did in the late 90s or early 2000s or whenever it was. Early 2000s. Early 2000s. This is the original game called Neverwinter Nights that was released as an online game in 1991. Neverwinter Nights is on here for two reasons. It was the first what you would consider kind of graphical MMO. Basically, the people at Stormfront Studios took the Gold Box engine that powered the uh, classic Gold Box AD&D games. They made it all work multiplayer, and then they threw it out there in partnership with AOL. The thing that Neverwinter Nights did is it created a lot of the framework for how we understand the organization of social groups in MMOs. And one of the main things it did was guilds. The modern conception of a guild, again, was Neverwinter Nights first. I haven't done enough in-depth research to tell you the answer to that question. Maybe it wasn't first, but it was the game that really popularized the idea of a guild system and really created an understanding about that. It kind of created our modern conception of PvP as well, to a degree. So Neverwinter Nights was not a direct influence on the big MMOs of today, because we just talked about that chain separately. But in the way people organize socially and interact with each other in an MMO framework, Neverwinter Nights established a lot of that framework. And that's why it deserves to be on the list of 100 most influential games. Well, and following that same line of thought, World of Warcraft. That's right. So I said EverQuest is not on the list, and EverQuest is basically not on the list because there's not space for it. World of Warcraft was a response to EverQuest, and it was a response in two ways. It was a response because a lot of the Blizzard people were really into EverQuest. I mean, they liked it, but it was also a response in how do we change this formula to make it like more accessible to people that don't just like killing the same wolf 500 times. But that's so much fun. (laughs) Sorry to any EverQuest fans out there. That's just not my cup of tea, but you're welcome to enjoy that kind of thing if you so choose. So, World of Warcraft did a lot of things. And again, it wasn't first for doing all of these things, but it was the first one to bring them all together kind of in a framework. The two big things that it pushed that a game like EverQuest didn't have is having certain content be instanced. In World of Warcraft's case, it was just dungeons. Other games took that further to have other instance content as well. So that if you were running a dungeon and killing big bosses for loot, which is something that EverQuest had already established as a thing you do in MMOs, you would not get through the entire dungeon just to have another group swoop in and steal your kill at the last second. Because EverQuest had the idea of running dungeons for loot, killing big bosses and getting big rewards... But they didn't have the concept of instances, so they were entirely open world, and anyone could interfere with anybody else in getting that stuff. So, it introduced that. Uh, I mean, it may not have been the first, but it popularized instance content. Tapping is another thing. The idea that people couldn't steal your kills once you start on a monster, it's your monster. Tapping has evolved over time. I mean, World of Warcraft doesn't even use tapping anymore, in the same sense. But the idea that somebody couldn't steal your kill from you and then therefore steal your rewards from you was a very big deal back then. So the idea that you tap a monster and then it's yours, even though it's changed in modern MMOs, that was still a big step forward. And then the other thing was the quest system. And uh, we talked about in our Blizzard episode how that was kind of by accident. They expected World of Warcraft to be a very grindy game, just like EverQuest. And in fact, while classic, as people are going to quickly remember and maybe be sad about actually does turn into a pretty grindy game at the end getting up to 60 is a grind fest now you don't have to grind through the entire game but at the end you still got to grind and wow and they thought the entire game was going to be a grind fest because everquest had kind of established that mode of operation and even ultima online had established that mode of operation but they decided that in order to get people into the game and make it more accessible that they would have some quests in the starting areas and they were influenced by their own Warcraft 3 and some of this. Of course, the famous exclamation point came from Warcraft 3. Well, actually, it came from Diablo. Diablo 2. <laughs> and then it was borrowed from Diablo 2 for Warcraft 3 and then Warcraft 3 to World of Warcraft. So they decided they'd have some introductory quests just to get people started. But then when they went into playtesting, people were like, all oh, those quests were great, but then they stopped. Where'd the quests go? So then they were like, oh, crap. Now we have to make a bunch of quests. So the idea of progression being quest-driven instead of monster-killing-driven is another World of Warcraft legacy. So for many reasons, it deserves to be on our list. It's one of our more modern games, but the MMO genre blew up so huge after World of Warcraft that we can already see its significant influence on games that came after. But of course, World of Warcraft is a subscription game. It is. We still have some of those. Final Fantasy 14, for instance, does very well as a subscription game. But that is not really the way most MMOs work anymore. And that brings us to the next game on our list, Maple Story. Maple Story is a Korean MMO. Very primitive. It's two-dimensional. Not like WoW or any of those. But Maple Story is one of the most influential games on the way games are played today. Its influence cannot be overstated, because it did two things, both of which some people might consider a blight on everything. Uh-oh. One of them is it really is the main driving force behind the concept of free-to-play. The idea that, uh, you know, you can play the game, you can do whatever you want in the game to a certain point, but then eventually they'll start hitting you with these little microtransactions to continue progressing. This happened because of the economics of East Asia. Computer gaming became really popular in South Korea in the late 90s. But the standard of living was still kind of catching up. This was a period when South Korea was really starting to turn into the powerhouse we think of it today. The standard of living was not great for everybody. Most people could not afford to go out and buy expensive computers and then buy a bunch of expensive computer games. But Korea also, in this period, rapidly developed its internet infrastructure. South Korea was one of the first places on the entire planet to have a really good, really all-pervasive broadband network because the government really pushed it, and Korea is small enough that with a lot of government pushing, it's not that hard to make it all work, so to speak. So this combination of people not being able to afford computers or computer games and having a really great network infrastructure led to the concept of the PC bong which is their term for an internet cafe. So the way this would work is you wouldn't just go to an internet cafe to access the internet or play like a simple game or something. What would happen is if you had a more sophisticated game like an MMO, which became a very popular genre in Korea, what you would have is you would have the PC bong buying, buying the accounts, buying the game time, and then parceling that out to their people that were coming to the PC bong in terms of charging them the hourly rate. So the PC bong kind of served as the middleman, the facilitator, to get people to play these games. The end player didn't have to buy a game. They just had to pay for the time that they were playing if they were paying in a PC bong. Obviously, if they owned their own computer, they could play at home and use some kind of model, too. So that's why the whole free-to-play thing developed. And MapleStory was the first prominent free-to-play game, free-to-play MMO, in South Korea. After MapleStory came Lineage, and Lineage was even more ridiculously popular, MapleStory and Lineage between them very much started this whole free-to-play phenomenon. And then over time, free-to-play started infiltrating the United States. Guild Wars was a big part of that, which was another Korean game. And then during the period of time where we got oversaturation in the MMO market, and all of these subscription-based MMOs couldn't survive anymore because there are only a certain number of people that are going to pay a subscription, and they're not going to subscribe to 500 games. So you started getting a narrowing and a winnowing out of the MMO field. Then the Western publishers looked at this Korean model and started making their games free-to-play too. So the entire free-to-play model comes basically out of Korea, and MapleStory is a game that you can pick as a kind of ground zero for that. Now, there are other games you could choose to represent free-to-play, but I chose MapleStory both for that influence, but because it had another influence as well. So MapleStory was released in Japan a few years after it came out in South Korea. In Japan, they chose a different approach to monetizing the game because Japan didn't have the same... Tradition, you know, paying by the hour or that kind of stuff or microtransactions. So, what they did is they introduced what they called gachapon tickets. And for a hundred yen, you could buy a ticket, you could cash in the ticket to get a random reward from a list of such rewards. The gachapon ticket was the first loot box we're going to have to go over there and have words with people. <laughs> that's right. So not only was MapleStory at the forefront of the free-to-play movement that came out of Korea and became hugely influential. I mean, so many games are free-to-play now. I mean, your League of Legends, your Overwatches, your Team Fortresses, your Fortnites, you're your, all of them. You know, I mean, that's such a huge mechanic outside of MMOs. Not only was MapleStory at the vanguard of free-to-play, but it was also the game that brought us loot boxes. And yeah, that's not a great development, but it is an influential development. That's a big part of all of these games today. All of these team-based shooters like Destiny and Titanfall and Anthem and, you know, all of that whole genre. And it's it's all about the loot crates, for better or worse. So that's why MapleStory makes our list of the most influential games. So that kind of takes care of our MMO segment of things. But what about the Tower of Druaga? So Tower of Druaga is here because, again, there are a few different games I could have chosen to discuss the development of the JRPG and of the action RPG. Druaga, which again is not very important in the West, was an absolutely huge influence on the development of the action RPG in Japan and on the adventure game in Japan. We talked about it in our Namco episode, so we don't have to go in-depth again. But basically, each level is the floor of a tower. And on each level, you have to go around gathering items, slaying monsters, and finding the exit to the next level of the dungeon. It was inspired by Dungeons & Dragons because uh, Masanobu Endo, who created it and also created Xevious, was exposed to Dungeons & Dragons in the West. It was not an RPG. It was an action game because it was in the arcade. But Hydlide, for instance, was a game that was specifically influenced by Druaga, and it was one of the foundational RPGs. Zelda absolutely had to have been influenced by Druaga because there are just too many similarities. It borrowed some items, it borrowed some enemies, and the basic mechanic of you have a sword that you swing, and you have a shield that's automatically always out and can block projectiles is just directly out of Druaga. So you know they had to be inspired by it. So the more actiony, adventury type of game that came out of Japan, which has been a big influence, really in large part goes back to Druaga. So we wanted to include that here.
0: Well, in the same vein of Tower Druaga, Wizardry.
1: Yes, so we already touched on Wizardry in the last episode, which means we can skip it in 10 seconds here. Basically, Play-Doh RPGs were RPGs where you had huge parties. In the Play-Doh game, it was uh, all individuals because it was multiplayer, but you had huge parties. You explored dungeons that were depicted in a wireframe 3D view, and you killed monsters, got better equipment, and cleared out the labyrinth. Wizardry brought that exact same kind of gameplay to the uh, microcomputer market. The party was all controlled by one player, since these were not massively multiplayer systems like Play-Doh was, but you have a party, different classes, different capabilities, wireframe dungeon, go kill things. It was hugely popular. It was one of the foundational games in RPGs. Lots of RPGs after it uh, took influence from it. The Bard's Tale was a direct influence from it, which was another hugely successful series. Might and Magic took influence from it. Basically anything that depicted the world in that kind of three-dimensional space that you have a little window showing where you're going took direct from Wizardry. There you have it. But Wizardry beget Ultima. It did not. There are two major strands in early RPGs. Just about every computer RPG created throughout the entirety of the 1980s and even to some extent into the early 1990s was either an Ultima derivative or a Wizardry derivative, and maybe occasionally mixed and matched both. So Ultima's big shift, a big way of doing things, was that Richard Garriott, and more significantly for this specifically, his friend Ken Arnold, figured out a way how you do a large and expansive world within the confines of a microcomputer with very limited memory. And the answer to that is you create tile-based graphics, which means that you have a finite set of tiles that each have a particular design on them, a particular terrain feature design on them, and then you mix and match those to create large worlds. That allows you to have a lot of variety without using up all the memory that it takes to generate each square uniquely each time you play. Ultima was a tile-based exploration world. The early games did have 3D dungeons, but these were not inspired by wizardry. They were inspired by our friend Silas Warner, who created a three-dimensional maze game called Escape in the very early days of the Apple. I'm sure that Silas Warner was in part inspired by what was going on on Play-Doh as well, just like the wizardry people were, because That whole three-dimensional thing was very big on Play-Doh, and Silas Warner was very big on Play-Doh, but it's a separate chain for that. And then later on, he changed it so that it was no longer the 3D dungeons, but then the combat took place in the same overhead-view tile-based setup as everything else. Ultima had a huge impact on a bunch of games that followed it, including the Gold Box series from AD&D, all the way up to games that followed that. So those are the two threads Of RPG, Any CRPG, computer game, RPG that exists today owes some kind of debt of gratitude to either Ultima or Wizardry, one or the other. We included one other Ultima game on here as well. We avoided sequels in most cases, but Ultima 4 is worth pointing out, because it is truly the first game that introduced the concept of a morality system to RPGs. The specific morality system that Ultima 4 used, I wouldn't say is that influential. But that idea that your character can make choices and those choices can affect how other people see the character and how quote-unquote good or bad that character is really starts with Ultima 4. So games like Knights of the Old Republic or Mass Effect, for instance, that have some kind of morality system, Ultima 4 was really a starting point for that. And that's, that's a pretty significant development in RPGs as well. Really, that leads us with, do we go
0: into Rogue?
1: Right, so Rogue is a completely different chain of RPG. Rogue, for those that don't know, is a game where basically every time you play, it's randomly generated. You have your character, and you go into a randomly generated dungeon with all sorts of monsters, with all sorts of weird and scary abilities, and all sorts of items to find to make your character more powerful. And you keep playing through these randomly generated spaces until you finally die. And when you die, you're done. One of the major features of rogue and true rogue clones is permadeath, which means when you die, your character's gone, and you have to start all over from ground zero again. Randomized dungeons, permadeath, and collecting lots of treasure and fighting diverse monsters are all kind of the main points of rogue. You feel rogue's influence in a couple of different ways. You have the direct inspirations, Rogue begat NetHack, and NetHack is actually probably more influential in Rogue on what came afterwards. Again, this is one of those situations where you could go with Rogue or you could go with NetHack or you could do 1,000 games and include them both. I decided to go with Rogue because really NetHack is not... It's a refinement. It's a refinement, exactly. It's, it's not that innovative compared to Rogue. It's just that NetHack, because it was distributed on the internet was more widely available, and that's the game that a lot of people played. But Rogue was the progenitor of that. You have the direct impact and the indirect impact. The indirect impact is that right now, roguelike games are so popular. Dwarf Fortress, FTL, many, many more. Just that roguelike idea of randomly generated, keep gathering stuff and keep improving your character till you finally die has become such a big part of the modern indie space. Yeah, I mean, they're even called Mm roguelikes. That's how influential it is. There are very few genres that are named after games. Metroidvania is one, adventure is another, and roguelike is a third. That's the indirect influence. The direct influence is on the further development of the RPG in the 1990s which is very impactful on the way that the RPG has continued to develop today. The RPG kind of died out in the early 1990s through a variety of circumstances that mostly had to do with computers getting more sophisticated, multimedia getting more sophisticated, and people not being really sure how to bring the RPG into this new paradigm. One of the games that brought it back was Diablo, which is not a pure RPG, but it's very RPG-like. Diablo was not inspired directly by Rogue. It was mostly inspired by a game called Angbod, but Angbod was a roguelike. Diablo is inspired by that. We did not include Diablo on our list. Again, that's that's one I very well could have. Tough choices. When you're trying to balance all the genres, sometimes you have to let some games go to let other genres have their moment. I think Diablo was more influential than, say, Fire Emblem, for instance. But part of the goal of this list was that every genre of some significance today, you can see a little bit of where they came from. I wanted to include a tactical RPG because those are still things that people enjoy today. That means something like Diablo has to be left on the cutting room floor. But Diablo then had an influence on Baldur's Gate, and Baldur's Gate is on our list. Baldur's Gate is here because Baldur's Gate is the game that brought the RPG back, the computer RPG back after it was nearly dead. And basically what the Baldur's Gate people wanted to do is how do we get that kind of traditional turn-based RPG to be exciting in modern times? And they looked to real-time strategy games, and they looked to Diablo, and they were like, well, we do that. We do an isometric view, very much like Diablo. We have stuff happening all the time during combat, but it's still technically turn-based under the hood, and we give you the ability to do a pause at any time. So, that real time but pause conceit for combat is what allowed the RPG to kind of move into the modern era and still be relevant. And Baldur's Gate has influenced a host of things. Uh, certainly, most recently, games like Divinity Original Sin, which is very popular, the Pillars of Eternity games, and all of that. So, that style of game has been incredibly influential. And then, of course, With Knights of the Old Republic, Bioware basically brought that kind of gameplay into a polygonal 3D space as well. So Diablo's not on the list, but Baldur's Gate is.
0: Well, if you're going to go through a gate, you're going to have to go into a dungeon then, and then have to fight the master of that dungeon.
1: Dungeon Master is a game so influential that it could have almost been in the top 20. But we could only fit 20 games in there, so this one didn't make it there. Dungeon Master itself is a little bit of an obscure game but it is so incredibly influential because it is the game that first brought RPGs into true real-time. Earlier RPGs that had a first-person perspective, like Wizardry, like Bard's Tale, like Might and Magic, they were step-based. Some of them gave you the illusion of being in real-time because you could see monsters in the distance and they would come towards you. But really what was happening is every time you took a step, the entire game world shifted slightly. So if you stayed still, absolutely nothing changed in the world. It was only when you were moving around that stuff happened. It was step-based. Dungeon Master was first person, and it was real time. That was just a complete paradigm shift in the way RPGs were done. Westwood then went and popularized that even further when they did Eye of the Beholder for PCs because Dungeon Master was on the ST. It was done in 1987, and it was done on the Atari ST. The Atari ST never became a huge platform in the United States, but then Westwood created Eye of the Beholder, which they freely admitted was basically we took Dungeon Master and we put it on the PC and slapped a D&D license on it. So then Eye of the Beholder brought that same kind of gameplay to PC, and it just exploded from there. Any RPG where you have a first-person perspective and you're running around the world in real time, fighting things and exploring things, harkens back to Dungeon Master, so the Elder Scrolls series, to pick a huge one today. You don't get to the Elder Scrolls series without first passing through Dungeon Master. Hugely influential. The other thing it did, it was one of the first ones because it used a GUI interface. It was one of the very early RPGs to use a GUI interface. So it allowed you to directly click on things on the screen to manipulate them. And it represented your inventory with a GUI, and it represented all your pieces of equipment as a mannequin. And you could click on a piece of equipment and click on the proper part of the mannequin, and it would equip you with that item. So basically the entire equipping system that every single last RPG and MMO uses today basically started with Dungeon Master as well. Pretty important influence to have. Yeah, it's a hugely influential game. And it did pretty well in its own time, but since it was on the ST, didn't get that widespread. But that's a big one. That's two columns down.
0: We're making progress. We have three more to go. Yes. And we will just start
1: with, on the far right, with Pa Rappa the Rapper. So rhythm games are still a big thing today. They change a bit over time, but rhythm gameplay is one of the big things that still uh, attracts people. And there's really two things that brought that in. Pa-Rappa the Rapper was the first one. Again, there were other games that vaguely had you do similar things before that, but we're not about what's first, we're about what popularizes. Pa-Rappa the Rapper is really kind of the first rhythm game where you're given a bunch of button presses you have to do, and you have to do them in rhythm in sequences they come up. It was huge in Japan. In the United States, it was just kind of like, eh, that was okay. But it was huge in Japan, and so that influenced a lot of the further course of rhythm gaming.
0: Well, since they're not on the list, I mean it influences Crypto the Necko Dancer, which is really popular right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The uh,
0: Cadence of Hyrule, which came out fairly recently on the Switch, which is also a really fun game. It all comes from these rhythm fun.
1: Right. And of course, the other thing that came out of the rhythm movement is Konami saw how popular this rhythm thing was, and they started releasing a series of rhythm games in the arcade. And again, you could have chosen a lot of games for this. The first game they uh, did was Beat Mania, which kind of got the ball rolling, and it even provided the name for this genre in Japan. You know, they kind of call them b money games, which is kind of short for Beat Mania. Could have gone with that, but I chose the one that exploded internationally, and that's Dance Dance Revolution. Dance Dance Revolution was kind of the last great gasp of the arcade in the West. Arcades continue to have more relevance in Japan further than that, but Dance Dance Revolution was the last big arcade craze in the West. And this is the game that really brought rhythm gaming into a worldwide consciousness, because the Bimani games beat Mania and some of the others, and Pa Rappa... They were all popular in Japan, but they didn't really get global appeal. Dance Dance Revolution is the one where everyone realized, oh my gosh, we really like doing rhythm games. And so it's because of Dance Dance Revolution that you get things like Guitar Hero and Rock Band, and those games obviously have had their day and people have moved on, but Guitar Hero was a huge thing in the mid to late 2000s. Konami did rhythm games that were similar to that. They did Guitar Freaks in the arcade. And Harmonix, the company that created Guitar Hero, actually got their start doing uh, karaoke games. Well, one of their early things. I mean, it wasn't strictly their start, but one of the early things they did was a karaoke game for Konami. Because Konami had kind of cornered this section of the market. They did one of the SingStar games. So all of that kind of goes back to Pa Rappa on the one hand, and then the whole Bimani series on the other hand. But with Dance Dance Revolution really representing that for our purposes because it was the big worldwide phenomenon. So
0: I guess I'm going to have to say the word that I don't know how to pronounce it. Shariki.
1: I think that's probably right. The casual games movement. There are a few entry points to the casual games movement. I mean, it's more of a movement than Chains of Influence, because very few games, like, directly influence each other in this realm, other than, like, straight-out clones. But... The whole idea of video games as something that can be a time waster that you can just spend a few minutes doing when you're not doing something else, and this kind of game that appeals to everybody of all ages, of all backgrounds, this kind of casual game thing. You yeah, know, there are a few milestones on the way to the casual gaming movement. The biggest one may have involved some falling blocks and may not be coming up in this episode, But outside of that really big game that we'll come to later, the real big start of this was kind of the match-three phenomenon. And match-three games are still incredibly popular today. King is still made up almost entirely of Candy Crush, and they just make billions and billions of dollars with nothing but Candy Crush. I'm exaggerating a little, but that's the big match-three game today. Before that, Bejeweled was the really big match-three game, and it's the game that got PopCap going, and PopCap was one of the early big names in the whole casual game movement and that whole casual game thing going. Bejeweled was inspired by Shariki, so this time I went with the obscure game. Very few people probably heard of Shariki. It's another Russian game. What is it about these Russians and puzzle games?
0: They're indoors, it's cold outside, and we have nothing better to do
1: that and the soviet state put a great influence on math and science education so you know the math science logic puzzles all of this kind of merges together so there's some of that too so shariki was created by a russian named uh, eugene alempson and released in 1994 on ms dos it's essentially the first match 3 game i'm not saying it's the first game ever where you did where you matched 3 things i mean doctor mario was a match 3 game yeah But Shiriki is the game that created kind of the casual match-three movement. Bejeweled was directly inspired by Shiriki, and then Bejeweled, like, inspired everything else. So this time, rather than going with the Populizer, uh, because I like to mix things up a bit and keep things unpredictable, I went to the Originator. And in this case, that is Shiriki. What about Pokemon Red and Blue? Yeah, so, you know, fight monsters, collect monsters... It's an RPG, except with cockfighting with creatures you keep in your pants. Wait a second. Yeah, I know. Sounds kind of dark when you put it like that. There's not really much to say about Pokemon. You can devote a whole episode to Pokemon, but in terms of this 100 games list, there's not much to say about Pokemon. It was a huge global phenomenon. It basically saved the Game Boy from extinction. A huge part of why Nintendo got to be the king of handhelds for years and years and years is because of Pokemon. Any game where you go out and discover monsters and fight monsters owes a debt of gratitude to Pokemon, even something like Monster Hunter. I mean, Monster Hunter has completely different goals for what you do with those creatures than Pokemon does, but it comes out of the same idea as Pokemon does. It's just a phenomenon. It deserves to be on here for just being a phenomenon, basically. I mean, I don't know that the direct chains of influence are always huge, but I think we can all agree that the modern video game industry would be very different if Pokemon hadn't happened. So, Pokemon, red and blue.
0: Well, another one that's sort of a huge, weird party game, kind of, is Minecraft.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's one of the newest games on the list here, and that's just because it exploded so much. Just this idea of going and building things and harvesting things to build more things and... Surviving while you build things and find things to build more things. Just the way it unleashed imagination. It's like, it's the ultimate sandbox. I mean, sandbox gaming is something that has existed well before it does. But just the idea of the ultimate sandbox, the ultimate world that you can manipulate any way you want to build anything you want, to do anything you want if you're creative enough. That's going to be a big future of gaming, I think. I mean, it's already big in the now, but I think it's going to be an even bigger part of gaming in the future, and it's hard to overstate. And, you know, of all things, it partially goes back to Rogue as well, because Dwarf Fortress was one of the big influences on that one. Uh, It also goes back to Populous, which reminds me again that Populous probably really should have been on the list. (laughs) Good job, Alex. Because Dungeon Keeper, where you build your own dungeon to uh, kill all those pesky heroes trying to take your evil treasure, which, of course, grew out of Populous from the same company, Dungeon Keeper was another big influence on it. Just this idea of these games where you construct things, you build things, you refine things. Uh, also, in the case of Dwarf Fortress, the added wrinkle that not only are you are doing that, but you're constantly exploring and the game goes on forever. Those are the kind of games that were crystallized down into Minecraft. And, you know, there were some others. Infiniminer was kind of probably the most direct influence on making it a mining game. We didn't include Infiniminer on our big list either. But, yeah, Minecraft. It's probably the most widely played game today. Quite possibly, yes. I mean, just in terms of sheer number of people that play it. We'll have to
0: uh, reference one of our old episodes as we dive into Half of a Life. Or Half-Life.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, these I want to take in a kind of particular order, and it's fine to start there. The first-person shooter is still one of the biggest, most influential genres, period. And if you put first-person and third-person shooter together, even though they're slightly different, they're very similar in many ways— That kind of whole idea of a shooter game in three dimensions, whether it's first or third person, is kind of the the biggest thing still today of, like, everything. The first few steps in this chain are being reserved for our Top 20 Games episode. So we're kind of coming to the chain a little bit in the middle here. Half-Life was very important for a bunch of reasons. It propelled shooters in a more story-driven direction, It proved that shooters could tell a story and not just be run around and blow up everything in sight. It started the move towards more sophisticated AI in opponents in shooter games. It served as a modding base for Counter-Strike, which uh, started the whole team-based, more realistic shooter kind of craze, which is still something that we see today. I mean the whole team-based shooter thing that it helped spawn is is still huge today in games like Overwatch, uh, even if, you know, those aren't strictly realistic in the same way as Counter-Strike was, those games also borrow a lot from MMOs and combine those kind of things together. And another thing that they borrowed from very heavily is Battlefield 1942, which we've also put on our list. In the mid-90s, there were a lot of games that were starting to do like team-based shooting competition, kind of the whole arena series of games. Unreal Tournament did it, Quake 3 did it. There were a lot of shooters that were doing this. Battlefield 1942 from the Swedes, a little shout out to Sweden there, from DICE, kind of took this kind of gameplay that was already developing in those arena shooter type games, but then had the added wrinkle of giving everyone their own class. So you had teams of players, but each player on the team had a specific role on the shooting team based on the class that they had. So pretty much all of the team-based shooters today, whether it be Team Fortress, whether it be Overwatch, whether it be the later Battlefield games, because they still make Battlefield games as well, they all owe a debt of gratitude to Battlefield 1942 for introducing this concept of class-based gameplay to multiplayer competitive shooters. Okay, a Halo game. The important thing about Halo is it showed that you could do first person shooters on consoles. And yes, I'm a huge GoldenEye fan myself, so I'm well aware it wasn't the first game to do it. And GoldenEye was very successful and worked very well in its own time. But Halo established that you didn't necessarily need mouse and keyboard in order to play a first person shooter game well. They figured out kind of the twin stick control thing where you have one to move and one to shoot, to te- or to aim, sorry. was back on Robotron for a second. And they implemented little tricks, like when your uh, targeting reticule moved over a target for a brief instance, so brief that you don't even really notice it yourself, the game locked you onto that target. So for that brief moment, even if you hadn't moved your cursor quite right where it needed to be, the game would compensate for you and, and get your cursor where it needed to be. A little bit of our auto-aiming help. By using little tricks like that, they were able to use a dual stick setup that worked almost as well as mouse and keyboard. The mouse keyboard purists will say that it works nowhere near as well as mouse and keyboard. But the point is, before Halo, with very limited exceptions, everyone thought that for a shooter game to be truly good at a shooter game and have a truly responsive shooter game, you needed mouse and keyboard. Halo proved that you could do it with two sticks instead. And because of that, shooters could be a viable product on console platforms. And that helped lead to the entire shift towards console platforms for most types of AAA games. Medal of Honor. So the important thing about Medal of Honor is that it was the first game really to make you feel like you were part of a bigger story with a bigger group of people working alongside you as you overcome objectives in a shooter context. Games like Doom and Quake and Wolfenstein, even Half-Life, you're the lone gunman or the lone crowbar man, running around, solving everything yourself. Yes, a game like Doom had cooperative play, but it wasn't really geared towards cooperative play. It was really geared towards solo play. You know, you had multiplayer games where you were fighting against each other, but that's a whole different kind of paradigm. But Medal of Honor was the first game to put you in the middle of a huge battle with lots of computer-controlled allies and enemies everywhere, and you taking part in a larger story and a larger campaign with these other companions, not fellow players, but computer-controlled fellow guys. It greatly expanded the scope, and of course it was done by Steven Spielberg's company, it was done by DreamWorks Interactive, and it was very deliberately drawing off of Saving Private Ryan. The starting point for that game was Saving Private Ryan, even though it ended up diverging from that. And, of course, the people that made the first Medal of Honor game then got all disgruntled at the studio they were working at. They weren't working at DreamWorks. They were working at the contractor that DreamWorks used. And then they went off and founded uh, Infinity Ward, and then you got the entire Call of Duty thing leapfrogging off of that. Obviously, Call of Duty is still a huge franchise today, and ground zero for Call of Duty, and for the idea of you taking part in an epic story with lots of people on the screen at once, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Really dates back to Medal of Honor, so you have to include that as one of the most influential. Alrighty, Arma 2. Arma 2 is not very influential. But it's on the list. Yes. But as we said before, part of the rules of this list is that we didn't put mods on the list. We just put games on the list, but then recognized that if there was a mod that was very important on it, that that would become part of things. So Arma 2 itself, not particularly important. Third-person tactical shooter made by our good friends in the Czech Republic. Good for them, but whatever. But then a guy down in New Zealand named Dean Hall thought that it would be a good idea to create a game that would help train his uh, fellow New Zealand military people in survival out in the wilderness. And so he created a mod for Arma 2 called DayZ. DayZ is kind of the beginning of a chain towards a lot of the games that are very popular today. This idea that you're dropped in the middle of a world, you don't have anything, and everything in the world's out to kill you, and you've got to gather up stuff, and you've got to fend for yourself, and you've got to survive. In that Minecraft survival mode? <laughs> well, in a shooter context, it's Daisy. It was a mod first, then it was a game that was developed out of the mod. So Daisy kind of starts us on that track towards I am alone in the world and I need to figure out how to survive and shoot other things without being shot myself. Which brings us to the next game on the list, PUBG, Players Unknown Battlegrounds. This is the most recent game on the list. It's hard to tell with recent games how big the influence is going to be, but PUBG was, of course, the battle royale game that kind of combined this survivalist shooter aspect of Daisy. With essentially with the Japanese movie Battle Royale, which is where the name comes from, to create this game where you're dropped on a map with uh, 99 of your closest friends and only one of you can make it off the island. When that happened, Epic had this little game that hadn't really gained any traction at all. They'd released it a while back, but it was small and tiny and puny and nobody cared, called Fortnite. And then after PUBG came out, the good people at Epic were like, You know what Fortnite could use? It could use a Battle Royale mode. And then nobody ever heard about Fortnite again. Ever. Yeah, so PUBG is very recent, but the Fortnite phenomenon is so huge that I think it's already fair to say that Players Unknown Battlegrounds had a huge direct impact on the future course of the video game industry. Even if the Fortnite thing flames out in the next year or so, its presence is going to be so big that, uh, yeah, I feel safe putting PUBG on this list of 100 most influential games, despite its recent vintage. Well, obviously, we're just going to have to pull the kill switch. So a lot of those were first-person games. A couple of the others were third-person games. But drilling in on the third-person a little bit more, there are two games more than any other that have influenced the way third-person shooting games work, even if shooting isn't the primary or only activity of the game. So I'm not just talking about... Pure shooters, but I'm also talking about games like Uncharted that have shooting elements in them and also have other elements in them. The first of those is Resident Evil 4. We'll get to other Resident Evils later, but Resident Evil 4 is the game that took the series from its more survival horror, where I'm running away more often than I'm engaging things, and I've got weird camera angles, and oh my gosh, these controls are so terrible, what's happening? To we're going to make an action game. It'll have zombies in it. You'll have to occasionally be careful about your ammo. But we're going to make an action game, and you're going to go out and kill things. You're not going to run from things anymore. You're going to shoot them in the head. He's coming right for you. Shoot him in the head. His axe is on fire. That's right. The most pioneering thing, I mean, obviously it's a great action game in its own right, but it ended up developing the absolute perfect camera angle for third-person action games that slightly over-the-shoulder view where it zooms in slightly more when you aim, turns out that is the perfect camera view for a third-person action game. Just about everything that came after from Gears of War to Uncharted took as its basic framing of the action that Resident Evil 4 over-the-shoulder camera. Because before that, third-person games you know, were more like the old Resident Evils and Metal Gear Solid and the PlayStation games where you're zoomed out. This brought us in close for the kill. Mm. It lets us feel the kill. It does. Unless we lose Leon. And so then the other side of modern shooting games, of course, is cover mechanics. Pretty much every single modern shooter has a cover mechanic of some kind. We can really uh, take that back to Kill Switch. Kill Switch is a very obscure game. It's a Namco game. Came out in the late 90s, I think. It wasn't very successful. It isn't very notable. But it did have, not the very first, I know this, again, we're talking about Chains of Influence, we're not going for the very first thing, there were cover systems before Killswitch. But it had one of the earliest sticky cover systems, where, you know, you go up to an object that you can take cover behind, you press a button, you take cover, and then you can stay in cover while you're shooting things. Kill Switch had that, and then the developer of that, Chris Asaki, went to work for Microsoft at the same time that Epic was creating a little game called Gears of War. Chris Asaki had a direct influence on how Gears of War approached cover, and the Kill Switch cover system was the direct influence on how Gears of War decided to do cover. And then Gears of War was basically the influence on how everyone else on the planet decided to do cover. After Gears of War, every shooter had to have a cover system. So we could have gone with Gears of War here but I wanted to give a shout-out to Gears of War's own inspiration. Basically, Gears of War is take the camera view from Resident Evil 4 and take the cover system from Kill Switch, and add a chainsaw. And orbital lasers. And orbital lasers, and you have Gears of War. So rather than doing Gears of War, I decided to include the two games that kind of between them created the framework for Gears of War, and then Gears of War is kind of the go-to for how third-person shooting games developed after that. That's why we have Kill Switch, another one of those obscure games, but it deserves to be here. The final column for this episode. Most of these have to do with the 3D space. That's kind of the link between all of these. But it's a, a varied group of games. One of the games that's on here that has no relation to any of the others, so we'll just get rid of it at first is Gran Turismo. Gran Turismo is not the first realistic racing simulation. That's a whole subgenre that existed well before Gran Turismo did. But I think Gran Turismo's level of fidelity, level of detail, level of care taken with modeling all the cars, it set a new standard and it created a world where you got to really be accurate on those physics and those handlings and all of those things if you want to have a credible racing game. Gran Turismo really just raised the bar. It was hugely successful in its own time. Subsequent games in the series continue to be hugely successful. It largely has carved out that niche all for itself. That's how amazingly ahead of the competition it was. Because we try to get every genre in here a little bit, I wanted Gran Turismo in here to kind of represent more modern driving games. Another big one is Virtua Fighter. We already talked about a couple of fighting games earlier. Virtua Fighter is important, because it was the game that showed the 3D was here. It had arrived. Obviously not nearly the first game to use polygons, but it's the game that convinced the entire industry that a 3D moment had arrived and that we were no longer in a 2D sprite-driven world as our main mode of expressing games and expressing game worlds and gameplay. It was insanely popular in Japan, ridiculously popular in Japan. Never really caught on in the US. I mean it's it's a pretty slow paced game compared to a Street Fighter or a Mortal Kombat. Graphically, it's definitely not as impressive as those games. I mean it's impressive that's in 3D, but the fighters in Virtua Fighter <laughs> barely look like human beings. They look like you stuck a bunch of triangles together. So for an American audience, they like the fast-paced, glitzier kind of Street Fighter II Mortal Kombat vein of things. Japan, it was hugely popular because it did have a deep fighting system and a deep combo system. And if you could get past the graphics and the presentation, there was a lot of deep gameplay in there, which uh, the Japanese market appreciated. But more importantly, Sony was having a lot of trouble convincing anybody that the PlayStation was a thing they could actually make. They'd show the demos. They'd show the famous T-Rex. People would be like, oh, my God, that's amazing. That 3D that you're doing is incredible but I can't believe you'll really be able to push enough polygons to make a credible 3D game once you add everything in on top of that. It's one thing to have a really impressive T-Rex with no background and no lighting effects and no fog effects and no anything else, but yeah, try putting that in the game. We're not there yet. The market's not there yet. And then Virtua Fighter hit, and the entire conversation changed for Sony. Now, Virtua Fighter's an arcade game, so obviously it's ahead of home consoles but no one had even really realized that they were that far along in polygons on arcade hardware. Yu Suzuki just kind of shocked the world with that one. He had done Virtua Racer before Virtua Fighting, but a 3D car, I mean, 3D cars had been done, 3D airplanes had been done, because there's relatively few moving parts on those. But a fully animated, articulated human being, even if he did just look like a mess of triangles, That was something that the rest of the industry had not realized was yet possible. And so when that game came out, Sony was able to get the support it needed to bring their system to market with a lot of games, and so ironic because, of course, the PlayStation then pounded Sega's own system into the dust. Sega itself was going for a sprite-based game-first philosophy with the Sega Saturn, even though they're the ones that created Virtua Fighter. But... It was that Sega game that allowed Sony to really enter the market in a convincing way and played a big role in them continuing to be a dominant player in the industry today. So Virtua Fighter had a lot of innovations, but um, even aside from that, just the whole Sony aspect of it is why it was such an influential game. Ridge Racer. So I could have gone either way here. Ridge Racer Daytona USA. I almost cheated and had them tied. I almost cheated and had 101 games. Ridge Racer and Daytona USA, between them, kind of established the modern paradigm of the 3D fast action racing game, not the simulation type of Gran Turismo. I went with Ridge Racer because it got there slightly first. It was one of the first uh, significant games to have textured polygons instead of just basic shapes with no detail on them. They just beat Daytona USA to market. The two companies were racing each other to get theirs out first. They got there first. One could have chosen Daytona USA for the way it pioneered massively multiplayer racing. You could line up eight Daytona USA cabinets in an arcade and have them all linked together and have eight players race each other, which was a pretty big deal. It was a hugely successful game in the arcade, one of the last massively successful games in the U.S. in the arcade. You could have gone with either one, but I went with Ridge Racer as just the beginning of the modern 3D polygonal high-speed racing game. Yay, racing! Uh, I've got Tomb Raider in here. Tomb Raider is it's the next step on the path of cinematic platformers like Prince of Persia, which we talked about in the first Mm -hmm. episode, set up this whole idea of puzzle solving and platforming and a little bit of action thrown in and really good realistic animations with a big focus on animation quality. Of course, that's a 2D game. Tomb Raider is really the game that took all of those concepts into 3D. It was a full 3D game in a time when there were very few of those and with its emphasis on the acrobatics of Lara Croft and the animations behind those acrobatics, it really was carrying on the torch of Prince of Persia. And then other games after Tomb Raider, like Uncharted and the rebooted Prince of Persia series, uh, the Ubisoft games that were in 3D, and Assassin's Creed, and all of those games kind of owe a debt of gratitude to the way Tomb Raider carved out that space. And, then, of course, you can't talk about Tomb Raider without talking about Lara Croft. She was video gaming's first sex symbol, quite frankly. It's hard to believe that anyone considered that mess of polygons a sex symbol, but you didn't have a lot to work with in 1996, so it got people excited, I guess. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, whether she was oversexualized, sexualized uh, that's not the point. We're just talking about cultural impact. Lara Croft was one of the first video game characters to have a huge cultural impact outside of just the video game space. That's another huge legacy. And obviously, they still make Tomb Raider games today. And these days, more often than not, people like them after it went through kind of a a lull period. Have to have Tomb Raider on the list. Of course. Resident Evil. We talked about Resident Evil 4 already. We did. We have Resident Evil on the list as well. One of the rare occasions where we have a game and its sequel. Resident Evil really defined survival horror, which is still a big deal today. And Resident Evil helped define how you did 3D graphics on the PlayStation when you couldn't really do 3D graphics very well on the PlayStation. Because, as I was just saying with Virtua Fighter, where people were like, I didn't realize we had come that far. Well, the answer is that we hadn't come quite as far as it seemed because it was still hard to do a fully three dimensional world on the PlayStation. But if you did a 3D wireframe, and put a 2D pre-rendered background on top of it, and then took complete control of camera angles to make sure that people couldn't see where the seams were and where you didn't render anything, then you could do a credible 3D world, and Resident Evil was one of the first PlayStation games to take that approach. It defined survival horror, which continued to be a major genre. I know it wasn't the first. We may even be talking about another game in that that was earlier in that game space in our final episode but it's the one that was first advertised as a survival horror. It kind of kicked that whole stage of the market into motion. Obviously, you wouldn't have Resident Evil 4 and all of its innovations that it did to action without Resident Evil. You also wouldn't have Devil May Cry and some of its innovations to action because that started out as a Resident Evil game. Even Onimusha, which has some interesting influences on later stuff as well, particularly God of War. It's not one of our games, but it influenced a lot of what God of War did, started out as a Resident Evil spinoff. So just for creating the whole infrastructure in which half of Capcom's games that followed came out from, and for defining survival horror, and for defining how to do 3D graphics when you don't have the capability to do full 3D graphics, Resident Evil definitely belongs on the list. Shinmu. Shinmu is here basically because it was one of the very first true open-world games. In three dimensions, where you had a whole city you could explore and you could basically walk around doing whatever you want. A lot of people would argue you wouldn't really want to do anything because Shinmu's kind of boring. And then a group of other people would say, how dare you? And declare holy war, because boy, does that game have a loyal following. But the point is, it kind of defined this idea of having an open world space like a city and just setting you loose in it to go about your business. I mean, you did have to show up at certain places at certain times to advance the plot, but it gave you a lot more freedom than a lot of games of that type did at the time, particularly in 3D. And it's also fair to say that that's the game that popularized quick-time events. Slayer had what we would retroactively called quick-time events. Certain other games did too, but it's only after Shenmue came out that quick-time events became a scourge that appeared in all sorts of games and prompted you to press A. For the love of God, press A. So we got Shinmu in there. Ico. Ico was another game that really defined how you could create a 3D world in a 3D space and have a character explore through that space and interact with that space. Its atmosphere, its moodiness, its melancholy was very influential on a lot of games that came afterwards and the two-character mechanic, where you have your main character and then you have the girl that you have to help get through things. That became very influential. The Last of Us, for instance, basically took its entire core concept of the uh, relationship between the two main characters from Ico.
0: And to a lesser extent, I would argue
1: Resident Evil 4. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 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 Ico is one of those games where it's hard to track every chain of influence, but it's definitely a game that a lot of game developers played, a lot of game developers digested, and a lot of game developers said, I want to capture some part of that game in my own game. So that's why it's there. Now we'll go old school with a couple of final games. These are our our last couple of games in this episode, which came in in a mostly reasonable amount of time this time. Woohoo! So I've got Mist on here. Mist is a divisive game, understandably so. Divisive. Oh yeah, not everyone loves Mist. Note chat the look of horror on my face. <laughs> some people like it. Some people think it was the death of everything. Really? Clearly, you like it. So, Miss Main influences are threefold in my mind. First of all, it was definitely a game that moved towards simpler interfaces. It was a game that was thinking about the player. And one of the goals of the Miller brothers was to create a game that their grandmother could play. I don't know that they actually had their grandmother play it or whether she would have even enjoyed a game. But the analogy of that is we want an interface that isn't going to confuse someone who doesn't interact with computers all the time. So they did their best to really narrow down the interface to a bare minimum of clicky here, clicky there, clicky clicky everywhere rather than all sorts of complex commands and keystrokes and everything else. Kind of the second influence of the game is that it was one of the first games to just kind of put you into a world, or a series of worlds as the case may be, and just have you explore it, where the act of just walking around the world is as important as the plot or solving the puzzles in the game. I think a lot of today's walking simulators like Dear Esther uh, in that kind of game, even if they weren't directly influenced by Mist, I think that they exist and people like them today in part because they evoke that same feeling that Mist did. Now, Mist did it all with spoken mirrors. It was not a fully realized 3D world. It was not real-time. It was literally a series of still images. You move forward, and the next still image still closer loads, And then you move forward, and the next one loads. It was all a series of static screens that loaded one after the other on each other so fast that it felt like you were moving through a fully realized world. But it was one of the first games that gave you a sense that you were moving through a big, lush, and fully realized world, because there had been other games that were open world before Myst. And I mean, I don't know that you would really call Myst open world because each of the worlds is so constrained, but it is open world in the sense that it kind of lets you tackle things in your own way, at your own time, and and explore at your own pace. It was not the first open-world game, but it was kind of the first one that had a whole lot of detail to that world because they took advantage of the capacity of CD-ROM to just really layer on the detail. And, of course, that's the third thing that Miss Influence was really big on. It was the killer app for CD-ROMs. Mist spurred CD-ROM sales. It was the point that multimedia PCs really started getting into the home in a big way, and it played a big part in people bringing multimedia PCs into their home. That was an important development for the future development of the industry as a whole, because we needed to kind of get over that threshold and get into that multimedia space, even if a lot of the stuff that came out in the 90s didn't quite know what to do with that multimedia space, to advance the industry as a whole. So I think you have to have Mist on here. But yeah, it is divisive. I mean, I'm not going to get into that really, but a lot of adventure gaming fans feel that it dumbed down the adventure game so much that it kind of helped lead to the death of the traditional point-and-click adventure. There's also the fact that it's one of those games that was kind of everywhere. It was bundled with a lot of CD-ROM drives. It set a record for most sales for a PC game uh, up to that time, but a lot of that was in bundles, and it's probably... It's one of those games where a lot of people took it out once and then never played it again. I mean, there's no way to measure this, but it's probably the best-selling game that has the worst ratio of people who bought it versus people who actually played it, because a lot of people just took it out once or would, like, show it to their friends when they came over because, oh, look how beautiful it is, but wouldn't actually ever play the game. I can understand that. Yeah, but it definitely was a critical moment in game history, and so we include it here. System Shock. System Shock is part of a chain. The chain starts with a game that's going to be coming up in detail in our next episode, Ultima Underworld. But System Shock, and then following it, Deus Ex. So again, you could have chosen System Shock, you could have chosen Deus Ex. Either one would have been equally valid. In this case, I decided to go with System Shock. In the early days of the industry, you had very clearly defined genres, particularly on console. You had your shoot 'em ups You had your beat-em-ups. You had your RPGs. You had your adventure games. And you didn't have a lot of mixing between those on how you approached games. System Shock was the beginning of the trend of blending this all together to get into the space where we are today, kind of in the, uh, the modern business. I almost made System Shock one of the top 20 most influential, but decided against it in the end. It's a shooter. It's also a game where your player improves over time. It's also a game that has some puzzles that you have to solve. It takes a little from all of the genres and blends it together. And this was even more greatly refined in System Shock 2 and in Deus Ex, which are the successors, both direct and spiritual, to what was going on in System Shock. But this idea that even though it's a shooter, you gain experience, And you gain new abilities, or just because it's a shooter, you don't have to approach in just this one way. Bringing in some role playing game elements, bringing in some adventure game elements, and merging that all together. That's what most video games are today. Even though we divide video games in genres, and some games still do have clearly defined genres, you have a whole mess of games from Bioshock to Mass Effect to even the Call of Duty franchise where, yeah, it's mostly this or mostly that, but we've blended together this other stuff. And, you know, character advancement has become a thing in basically every kind of game, that RPG kind of character advancement mechanic. And the System Shock series was one of the first game series to really go there. Just for the whole melding everything together and creating games that don't have clearly defined genres, but just place you in a world and place you in a story and give you some tools to do something within that context. Got to give some credit to System Shock there. And that wraps it up. Another 40 games.
0: Now we just have episode 120 more.
1: Can we do it? Yes, we can. The 20 most influential games of all time, as determined by TCW Podcast. We'll get to explore each of these in just a little more detail, but we'll try not to make it a five-hour episode because that would be bad. We'll try not to do that. So we'll see you
0: next time for the big episode 100, the top 20 games in the list of 100 most influential games. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be pre-ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.